Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good evening and welcome to tonight's program hosted by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. My name is Henry Manayan, your host and chair for tonight. It is my pleasure to introduce Steve Case, entrepreneur and best-selling author of The Third Wave, an entrepreneur's vision for the future. Steve is known for co-founding AOL, the first internet com- company to ever go public. In 2005, he co-founded Revolution, an investment firm based out of Washington, D.C. that has supported nearly 100 companies like Zipcar and Sweetgreen. Steve was selected by President Obama to serve as the founding chairman of the Startup America Partnership, an initiative launched by the White House to accelerate high-growth entrepreneurship throughout the country. He also serves as a presidential ambassador for global entrepreneurship and as a member of President Obama's Council on Jobs and Competitiveness. Steve sits on the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship and is chairman of the Case Foundation. Also joining us is Eric Rees, entrepreneur and author of The Lean Startup. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Steve Case and Eric Rees. Thanks, everybody, for making it. Uh, it's really an honor to be here with you, Steve. So thanks. Thanks for thanks, doing it. Great thanks to for have coming you. out to Silicon Valley, and uh, thanks for writing the book. I mean, as a as an entrepreneur myself, as someone who works with a lot of entrepreneurs, I feel like the lessons you shared in here are incredibly valuable, and I, you know, I'm really gratified to see the book do so well. Well, thank so you. Congratulations. Very much. I appreciate it. So let's start with the third wave, and what do you mean by that? You know, walk us through the the kind of the thesis of the book, three waves of the internet. Why did you write the book, and, and what do you want people to take away from it? Well, first of all, thanks for coming. It's great to great to see you all here. And uh, I, just, I, Eric is is quite a impressive author, having <laughs> written the Lean Startup five years ago, which has been a bestseller for all five years. I've resisted writing a book for fifty-seven <laughs> years, uh, but finally decided it was time. And the reason was because I was thinking about, particularly traveling around the country, meeting a lot of entrepreneurs, focused on a lot of different sectors, that something was changing around entrepreneurship. Uh, and that the third wave was going to be different than the second wave, but actually could learn some lessons for the first wave. Uh, so for me, it was an opportunity to write about the future while also telling some stories uh, from, the, from the past. And just to kind of set it up, the first wave was just building the Internet. Uh, the second wave has been building apps and services on top of the Internet. And the third wave, which is just now beginning, is integrating the Internet in seamless and pervasive uh, ways throughout our, throughout our lives. And in the process, changed pretty fundamental things like how our kids learn and how we how manage our health care and energy and transportation and food and financial services. A lot of things have changed somewhat in the first and second wave, but not that much and are going to change a lot in the... Uh, and the third way, but it's going to be different. It's, I think, a different mindset and a, a needs a different playbook 
than the than the second wave, which is more about the apps. Uh, and some of those you know, lessons from the first wave, as I said, are applicable. Uh, it, it is funny to say this now, because 31 years after we started AOL in 1985, but when we started, only 3% of people were online. And those 3% were online on average one hour a week. <laughs> so we've come a long way in 31 years. And that first wave was really building the infrastructure, the software, the servers, and the networks, and getting people to buy PCs, and getting modems built into PCs, and driving down the communication costs, a whole bunch of things that really took a decade before they finally happened in the beginning of the first wave. Nobody knew what the internet was or cared, <laughs> and the sense was it would probably just be a kind of a hobbyist market, never a mainstream market. By the end of that first wave, everybody was connected, and they realized it really was a pretty transformative you know, capability, which then set up this second wave and the great successes like Facebook and Twitter and Waze and Snapchat and, and, and so forth that had been basically apps running on smartphones for the most part, uh, and huge successes there. Uh, but it now kind of leads into this you know, third wave, and, and that's why I decided to write the book. So the book is kind of epic in scope, and you can get a sense of, you know, it, it weaves in elements of your personal story. Epic plus in this. scope, I like that. Yeah. I like that. Maybe I should get your blurb, epic <laughs> in scope. You can, you can write that Eric down. Eric right. the lean startup. Listen, unlike in 1985, someone could tweet that right now, and next thing you know, exactly. you would Please be hearing about it. Yeah, so yeah, epic go, in scope. Go, go right Eric ahead. Eric Reese, the lean startup. The third on wave. Uh, the third yeah, wave. That's, that's my, if you. I would tweet it, except I'm, I'm doing this. Um, and I, you know, I might stop down. right now and tweet it myself, uh, just, just so <laughs> I mean, don't forget the beautiful line. You're a poet. It's, uh, it's really, it's my pleasure. Really, the least I could do for a fellow author. Yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> you know, and I was thinking. That's okay. why I wrote the book. I wanted to be in the fellow author club. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're, they you're, don't respect you're, you're you if you haven't written now. the book. If you're an author, <laughs> listen, I'm, I'm a highbrow I, author. It's an honor to be in any kind of club with Steve. Let me tell you. Well, you're kind. Um, so you know, and I was thinking just to myself. He said one hour a week in 1995. I was like, how, how do they Snapchat then? <laughs> how, what did they do? One hour. Um, so, you know, Not you, much. yeah, the policy prescriptions, your like time working with the White House is like a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. But for me as an entrepreneur, you know, I always want to start with your personal story and like how you became an entrepreneur in the first place. And like at a time when it seemed crazy for people to get people online, like how did you take that up as your mission? And why did you think that was your little piece of the world to work on? Well, a couple parts to that. I, I, I got interested in being an entrepreneur when I was a kid, like 10, 11, started some businesses with my brother Dan, I should say, by the way. His son, Alex, is here. Alex, you want to wave hey. yourself? And his, <laughs> his fiance, Brianna, they get married in two weeks, is also here. Congratulations. So congratulations to Alex and Brianna. I'm sure they're now mortified that they, they, they came and sat in the front row. Uh, but my brother Dan and I started a number of different businesses when we were relatively young. I, I, it was just, just little things, but it got me interested. Uh, and uh, then in college, I happened to read when I was a senior in 1980, uh, a book also called The Third Wave by Alvin Toffler. And some of you may have read it. Toffler was a futurist. He also wrote Future Shock and some other things. And when I read this uh, 36 years ago, I was completely mesmerized. I, I was like, he was talking about sort of this electronic cottage and this future where people would connect with each other over you know, these different technologies and access information, basically talking about what we now think of as the internet, but it was very futuristic uh, in 1980. And I just said, that's, that's the path I wanna follow. When I graduated from college, there were no internet companies to go <laughs> to, and there really wasn't a startup culture back then. Uh, so I worked for a couple big companies uh, for you know, three, four years, and then kind of moved into, you know, moved to DC, joined a startup, which promptly failed. Uh, which is like, oh, welcome to the NFL. It's like startup <laughs> stuff is, is sometimes doesn't work the first time. 
uh, and I had two of the other people I met at that company. We started AOL in, in uh, 1985, and that was you know, a pretty circuitous path to eventually kind of breakthrough. I used to say that we were kind of like a 10-year-in-the-making overnight success. That you know, For most of those 10 years, it looked iffy, um, and even I'd get, you know, I'd get calls from time to time from my parents who would be like, I knew, I knew it was gonna, where it was going when this call would start like this. Steve, we love you. <laughs> and we're proud of you. But uh, this online thing, it doesn't seem to be working. <laughs> Have you considered like a real job, maybe like a plan B or something? But you know, we, we stuck with it and finally you know, broke through. And in retrospect, when I, was, I started, I was 25, 26, and I was, uh, uh, I guess, naive. And I thought it was so obvious that everybody would get connected quickly. And it was surprising to me that it took so much time and was so slow. But in retrospect, I can look back and, and you know, most people didn't have PCs. Back then, some of you will remember, you actually had to go to the peripheral section of the computer store to buy this thing called a modem. It was defined as sort of an optional, non-essential part of computing. Seems crazy now, but that's what it was in the, in the 1980s. And if you actually went to the trouble of getting connected, you'd pay about $10 an hour to be online. It's kind of intimidating. Uh, and the software to get online was kind of hard. And if you did get online, there actually wasn't much to do. <laughs> and there was nobody to talk to because it was still pretty early. So it just took a while to build the core uh, infrastructure and get people connected and and so that's why it, it really took a you know a, a decade so for me it was sort of circuitous from some of these businesses when I was a kid to being interested in this initially it didn't work with the first startup and you oh, know like what, first of all just for people who've never been through a startup failure talk about what that was like and then how did you decide to keep going I mean I I know a lot of people who their first taste of the startup life ends in failure they feel like well I'm it's not going to be like in the movies forget it I'll go back yeah. to my regular life like why did you continue to keep going uh, some uh, stubbornness, I guess, uh, but also some passion about the idea of the internet. I, I just knew it was going to happen. I just knew it was going to happen. I didn't know our company would survive when it did happen. Uh, there were some, you know, come dark days, but I just knew it was going to happen. And that was helpful. It was a sort of a you know, I always saw this kind of light at the end of the tunnel. Granted, sometimes the tunnel seemed long and the lights seemed flickering, but I just, I just knew, so I, I just stuck with it, and the team we had you know, kind of stuck with it and finally broke through. But we went, the other thing that's kind of amusing in retrospect, we went public in 1992, as, as you heard, it was the first internet company to go public. We'd been at it for seven years. We had 184,000 subscribers after seven years. Seven years later, we had 25 million subscribers. So it was, you know, the first seven years, it just was hard, and it was a struggle, and, 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 and even the IPO, I remember, like it was yesterday, even though it was 24 years ago, meeting with institutional investors and, you know, talking about, like, this internet and people connecting on their PCs, and they're looking at us like, you are insane. You know, <laughs> first of all, no normal person will ever do this. And second of all, you've been at it for seven years, and you have 184,000 people you've suckered into doing it. Obviously, it's not a big idea. Uh, and we raised in that IPO $10 million, and the value of the company that day was $70 million. Uh, and then eight years later, it was $160 billion. So you know, a lot of people were skeptical initially, but eventually, eventually we kind of you know, broke through, and that really was going to define that whole first wave. You talk a lot about lessons that we can learn in the third wave from the first wave. And 
the importance, you know, in that time of persevering through and having that kind of larger vision. I think for those of us who grew up with the internet, it's actually kind of difficult to imagine what the controversy was because it seems so obvious right. that, of course, I mean, we carry the internet in our phones and we're on it 24-7. Like, wh what was the count? Like, you said that we're, everyone's going to want to connect. I know you talk about in the book that people are the killer app of the internet. Like, explain what you mean by that and then, like, what... What were these bankers saying? Like, well, how could anyone possibly argue with that? Like, how, how did it not seem obvious? You know, now it's easy for us to say, well, of course, so clear in retrospect, but... Well, it wasn't just, the, the, it wasn't just like? the bankers. I mean, there are a lot of companies early on in the 80s, early 80s, were intrigued with this idea, AT&T and Knight Ritter and Time Inc. and, and uh, Citibank and IBM and Sears and Reader's Digest. You know, a lot of, you know, pretty significant companies were saying, uh, this is interesting and we should explore it. Uh, but for the most part, they explored it. The initial reaction was tepid. There wasn't a lot of consumer interest in it. And they kind of said, well, maybe people don't want to be connected. You know, we tried. You know, it's not working. So, you know, let's go on to the next thing. And what they missed there was that the idea of getting connected was intriguing, even though it was kind of foreign to people. They didn't really understand you know, how to process it. Uh, it really was, it just wasn't yet ready for prime time. It was still too expensive. It was still too hard to use. It wasn't that useful. It wasn't fun. You know, so if you just kept whacking away at that, eventually you'd, you'd, you would uh, break through. I think that's a lesson for you know, innovators, and you know, particularly in big companies, that, you know, that it does require kind of a long-term view and does require sticking with it because often the initial take, sometimes the initial several you know, kind of attempts just won't quite work, but eventually if you stick with it, it, it can work. But in terms of the lessons from the, the first wave, you know, there's three in particular, I call in the book the three Ps, uh, and it's perseverance, uh, partnership, and policy. You know, the, we were not alone in, in you know, the first wave of struggling to kind of break through. It, was, it, was, it took a while for most companies to raise money, took a while for most companies to, you know, to get, get traction. Uh, and the second wave, less so. There have been some true overnight successes in the second wave. Facebook actually is an overnight success. It went from a dorm room startup to a significant company overnight. Snapchat, same kind of thing. It was basically Instagram, same kind of thing. Pretty much an overnight success. Uh, and that was not the case in the first wave. I do not think it will be the case in the third wave. I think some of these sectors, uh, the opportunity to change healthcare and education is significant, but it's hard. It's going to take time and, and, and perseverance is going to matter. So that's one. The second is partners. In the first wave, it was all about partnerships. We could not have done, done it without the communications companies, the PC companies, and the modem companies, and the media companies, and you know, the you know, financial services companies. Everybody had to do their part. And it was sort of a tapestry of alliance. I think we had at AOL like 300 partnerships that you know, kind of made this you know, possible. Um, and the second wave, that was less common as well. It, it, was, it was more about the app, more about the software. Facebook didn't need any partnerships. You know, kind of, it, it just was, uh, people just fell in love with the idea and spread, spread it virally. And, and it wasn't really about, you know, partners weren't that important. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, 
Guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Will become important again in the third way because if you want to change, call it healthcare, kind of have to work with the hospitals or the health plans. It's not just about the app. If you want to change education, have our kids learn in a more personalized, adaptive way, you kind of have to work with the teachers and like work with the classrooms and work with the schools and work with the universities. So it's not so much just about the software partnerships will matter. And the third is policy. You know, and again, people, particularly frankly in Silicon Valley, don't like to hear this, uh, but the government's going to play more of a role in the third wave than it did in the second wave. Uh, the, 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 and it also played a big role in the first wave. Yeah, it's talk, so talk about, like, the, like again, I think it's hard for people to really remember all the like, controversial policy issues that came up in the first wave and talk about what, what that experience was like, and then we'll see if there's some lessons people could draw for the third well, wave. It, it, it's, it's worth noting that the Internet only exists because of government funding of DARPA that created the Internet. Initially, it was restricted to non-commercial use. It was only available to government institutions and educational institutions. Consumers could not connect to the Internet. Businesses could not connect to the Internet until 1991. So our first few years after we launched, we were kind of creating our, this kind of parallel universe. So the government created it. The government then commercialized it with this Telecom Act Congress passed. Uh, the government also decided to break up the phone company, Ma Bell, into a series of regional companies that unleashed a torrent of innovation in telecommunications. And if that hadn't happened, the internet never would have, would have taken off. So there was a series of moves that basically, you know, that, that made the internet possible because of you know, kind of government uh, action. Uh, the second wave, the government was for the most part on the sidelines. That it was, there were some exceptions to this, and particularly when companies got really big, Facebook, for example, when they passed a billion users, people said, well, we should look at privacy and some other things. But it wasn't really that important for most of that. But it will become important again in this, in this, uh, in this you know, third wave. So there were just a lot of different dynamics where the government was, was, was and I'm not like saying government's great. You know, government's broken and it's dysfunctional and, it's 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 weird how you know kind of how bad things sometimes are and some of the regulations are stupid and need to get changed. I'm not saying you know oh awesome government's going to you know be playing a more important role. I'm just saying that is the reality of the sectors that are going to get disrupted. We might all rail against the government, but at the same time we actually do want the drugs that our parents take to help them not kill them. We actually do want the food our kids eat at school to be safe and not make them sick. We actually do want, when we get on a plane, you know, to feel like it's not going to crash. And we, you know, drones not, you know, aren't going to create problems. And driverless cars, autonomous vehicles, smart cities, really interested, kind of want to make sure that they are safe and they're, they're going to be a net positive to society, not a net negative. So the reality is this stuff really is important stuff. It's how we eat and how we learn and how we stay healthy and how we invest and how we, you know, kind of, you think about energy and how we move around, pretty fundamental aspects. And the government, there are going to be some regulations in, involved, and the innovators just have to 
understand that and figure out a way to you know kind of you know kind of engage in a in a in a constructive way and just sort of wishing it wasn't the case uh is going to be a problem and trying to enter some markets you know ignoring the laws is is, is sometimes going to be a problem sometimes you can get away with it uber actually has gotten away with it at least in this country, they're shut down in Germany, they're shut down in South Korea, where the you know, government said, nope, you can't do it. Uh, so that's an example where they pushed the envelope and, and they were able to get a lot of traction. But there are other companies, particularly in healthcare, uh, 23andMe had this problem a couple of years ago in the genetics area. They made some claims that the government thought was inappropriate. They shut them down. They had went to zero revenue for like a year until they got on track. Theranos now has some issues around you know, some regulatory kind of approval uh, kind, kind of thing. So this is just the nature of, of the, the, the third wave. And, and the entrepreneurs and the innovators, whether it be the small companies or the big companies who want to grab that opportunity, which is vast. In healthcare, for example, is one-sixth of the economy. So there are going to be some gigantic companies built in the third wave. It's just going to require this mindset where perseverance is, is going to be important, partnerships are going to be important, uh, and policy is going to be important. So if I think about, I'm sure we have, you know, let's say right now, entrepreneurs who feel like they, they want to do in the third wave what you did in the first wave. And they are completely convinced that their vision, just like you saw something that could play out over 10 years, they're completely right. And they know that there's these difficult obstacles. And right this very second, maybe they're not seeing the kind of traction that would let them go public. What's your advice for them? Like, how, how do they think about, am I, you have that moment as an entrepreneur, like, am I crazy? Am I the only one that sees this? Am I delusional? Or am I onto something? How did, how did you sort through that, and how do you advise the entrepreneurs you work with now how they should sort through those questions? Like, is it time to pivot or, or just keep going? Yeah, I think it kind of depends on what the market's telling you. Are you, are you getting traction with, with, with customers? But that's why the partnerships are important. The partnerships actually can be an accelerator of growth. If you're trying to do it on your own, maybe you can only go so far. If you actually have partners, you have you know, opportunity to go a lot you know, faster. But that, that getting the partners is an interesting market test as, as well. If, you, if you're trying to get partners and everybody's saying no, maybe there's a reason they're saying no. And maybe you have to adjust something you're doing to, to, to reflect that. Our early days, our first five years, we had a partnership with Commodore, with the Commodore 64 computer. We had a partnership with Radio Shack, with their computer. We had a partnership with IBM, with their computer. And we had a partnership with Apple, not down the way. create something called Apple Inc. You know, Personal Edition. Those were hard partnerships to form. We were able to convince them that this was something they should invest in and they should you know, partner with us to, to do it. And they made us better because of the questions they asked and the pushback around a whole host of, of things. So I think the partner aspect is, is uh, uh, important. Uh, but at the core, it's, you know, do you really believe that that idea uh, is something that's going to have a significant impact? And can you then identify what the limitations, the roadblocks are, and then systematically kind of work on kind of knocking them, them down. And, and, and you know, sometimes it, you know, your initial idea is a bad idea. As I said, the first company I joined in, uh, in D.C. in 1983 uh, turned out to be a bad idea, even though when it got announced, it seemed like a really good idea. Uh, but it failed. And so the, you know, we, rather than say, okay, that proves that people don't want to go online, we said, well, actually, let's look at why it failed. And there actually were some reasons. And let's start again, and, and, which we did with AOL, and, 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 and kind of address uh, you know, learn from what those mistakes were and, and, and seize some of the new opportunities that had emerged in the meantime. It's good that you did. It's good that we, did. <laughs> we, we, we all appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, who's, uh, who's sending questions up. Um, a lot of questions here are about specific sectors that are going to be affected in the third wave. You know, you've mentioned healthcare, education, financial services. 
What are some of the upcoming disruptions that you're most excited about or that you think maybe people are underestimating? Well, I think there are a lot of them. And uh, the one sector that isn't, it doesn't get as much attention because it's not viewed as much as a tech sector uh, is food. You know, I think food is, is a $5 trillion industry. It's something that you know, investors talk about total addressable market, TAM. Food, 100%. <laughs> we all eat. And in this country, you think it's three meals a day. It's actually 4.6 meals a day. That's, that's, the, that's the current data. Uh, and most of the food we eat, uh, most people, most parts of the, you know, the country is, isn't great. You know, there, you know, there's a whole this big food complex, and it's kind of a more industrialized, processed, I wouldn't call it all junk food, but it's you know, not great. And there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are attacking that in a variety of different, different, different ways. And technology is a part of that, but it's not the, you know, the, the, the core of that. I think that's a you know, very exciting space in financial services, fintech. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting things happening. There's a big debate around the big banks. Are they too big to fail? And, you know, what should the regulations be? I think in the third wave, it, they might prove to be too big to innovate, that they're, they're, they're going to get chipped away by thousands of startups doing interesting you know, things, a lot of things like lending platforms for the unbanked, that people don't have access to traditional sources of, of, of borrowing other than like payday lenders that kind of rip them off. There are a lot of people looking at that. Uh, and so I think there are all kinds of opportunities in that, in that uh, uh, space. Transportation, we, we talked about. Obviously, we've seen some of that with Uber and other things in, in recent years and Tesla, but it's going to really accelerate in, the, in this, in this uh, third wave, and it's going to change how we think about you know, kind of moving around. So these are pretty fundamental you know, kind of parts of our life, pretty, pretty significant you know, sectors, but they won't be easy. One of the points I make in the book is sometimes revolutions happen in more evolutionary ways. And it's not, you know, the, you know, the, it's, it's quick to, 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 to happen as, as, as you might think. Do you have an example of an evolutionary revolution? An evolution, well, yeah, well the, first, the first wave was really all about that evolutionary revolution. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a struggle for most companies until finally, it broke through. I remember having a meeting uh, probably now eight or nine years ago, Nelson Mandela at his home in, in, uh, in uh, Africa, and he said something I'll never forget, which is always seems impossible until it happens. And I think that is kind of the lesson on, 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 on perseverance and the lesson on you know, these revolutions happening in an evolutionary way. It just it seems so elusive. It seems like, wow, it's just never going to happen, never going to happen. Uh, but if you really believe and you really stick with it, eventually it's going to happen, and you just need to make sure you're still on the playing field when it does happen. <laughs> yeah. We're getting a lot of questions about, the, about specific things from the AOL history, including what was the inspiration for the You've Got Mail <laughs> audio clip. <laughs> so before we go into the future looking, can we hear about You've Got Mail and maybe those 30, Well, it was, it was part of an CDs. overall effort in the uh, late 80s, uh, 89 probably, 88 uh, to try to make it friendlier. You know, as I said, the part of the reason the internet was not taking off, it was, it was threatening. It was kind of scary. And so we said, we're not, it's only going to work if it's easy to use, useful, fun, and affordable. And so how do we make it more approachable? That's part of the reason we created like free software and gave it, you, you probably got one of our disks <laughs> at some point in your, in your life, maybe, maybe more, than, maybe one. more than one. And, and you know, made a, a free trial. We just wanted to make it as easy as possible for people to try and to make it feel more approachable, more human. You know, we were, we were talking about ways to do it. I remember it was in our customer service group. This is when we had maybe 30 employees. So it was maybe five people in customer service. Uh, I was saying, how do we make this friendlier? How do we make it seem more 
approachable. Maybe we can add voices to the software so that it's sort of when you signed on, it would say welcome and things like that. And one of the customer service people, Karen Edwards was her name, kind of overheard me say that and said, well, like my husband, Elwood, actually does like voiceovers. You know, for, like he's a radio you know, guy. Uh, you know, so I, I'll ask him to record some stuff tonight. What, do you, what should he say? He's like, I'll post it in the room. Welcome. You've got mail. You know, like five or six things. Uh, completely spur of the moment. She took those home. He recorded them on you know, a cassette that, uh, that, that night, brought it back the next day. His voice was perfect. And so he threw it on the software a couple weeks later. And then you know, a few years later, he's one of the most iconic voices in the, in the, in the country, <laughs> completely by accident, because he ha you know, Karen happened over here at conversation. And, and so uh, that was an example of uh, just trying to make it more friendly, more, more accessible. So for similar reasons, some of you may remember that for uh, probably 15 years, I wrote a monthly letter to members. You know, I wanted everybody to feel like they were part of this movement. They were part of this, you know, kind of, they were pioneers too. And so report on what's going, what we're adding, any problems we had, almost like I was the mayor of the community, not just the, the CEO of the company. That was another example of trying to make it seem more friendly and, and approachable. And every time anybody joined the service, there was a welcome email from me welcoming the service and giving them some, some tips, which seemed really good when we were adding a few thousand customers uh, a month. At one point, we we're adding more than a million customers a month. And you know what? A lot of people clicked reply. <laughs> and at one point, I think I was getting, I can't really remember, it was like 20,000 emails a, a month. We had a whole team of like 20 people that were called the Steve Case email team. <laughs> uh, so that was one, you know, or maybe it's still, I think, a good thing. But, it, you know, I realized that that uh, after a while, I could no longer answer the emails <laughs> itself. But it was all, how do you make it more personal, make people feel like they're part of of this revolution. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right You're after listening this. to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. So again, a lot of questions about how large companies can be successful in the third wave. And I think, you know, you have a very interesting perspective, both as having grown a very large company and then, you know, having now working with entrepreneurs and companies of all different sizes. How do you feel like the legacy companies are going to do in the third wave? I think it's a mix. I'll answer, but I'd love you to answer, given some of your lean startup perspective and work with a lot of big companies. The, I think the simple answer is some companies will fail. They'll just be left on the wayside, uh, and some companies will succeed. And the difference between them will partly be the culture they build internally around innovation, kind of an entrepreneurial mindset, but mostly the network they build around the company. I think there's a growing recognition that no matter how great your company is, no matter how many smart people you think work for your company, more people work for somebody else. 
not for you. And so how do you tap into that? How do you build sort of this network around your company and watch what's happening on the periphery and, and recognize that entrepreneurs have interesting ideas and figure out a way for those interesting ideas and those interesting people to find their way to you? Uh, and figuring out ways to do that as companies get get large is, is tricky, but that's going to be one of the real skill sets in the third wave. But the reason big companies are going to have more of an opportunity in the third wave than they did in the second wave is that the startups are going to need them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're going to need partnerships with some of the incumbents in, in some of these sectors. You know, healthcare, for example, I mentioned the hospitals and health plans and so forth. If, if you just think it's about software, you just think it's a, an app in the app store, you're only going to go so far with that. You're going to really have to figure out how to connect with with things, you know, the, the key organizations in those sectors, and that will mean you'll, you'll want those partnerships to accelerate your growth. They'll want those partnerships to stay relevant and nimble and flexible and, uh, and agile. So I think that's gonna be great. But what would you say? You work with a lot of pretty big oh, companies sure. now, even though it started as a lean startup thing and people perceived it as very small startup oriented. The reality is what you're trying to do and have done is educate a lot of really big companies about how they can be more entrepreneurial. So yeah, let me well, turn yeah. the tables. Oh, here. no problem. It's my pleasure. Uh, you know, one of my favorite things to say to entrepreneurs is because uh, a lot of people, they become entrepreneurs because they hate working in big companies and they're trying to escape the bureaucracy. And I always say, if you hate big companies so much, why are you trying to create a new one? Right? Like if you're going to create the very thing that you hate, unless you've really given some thought to what kind of a company do you want to build? What do you want that culture to be? And, and everyone said, well, I want my company to be a perpetual startup, even as it grows. And I always ask them, you know, the follow-up question to that is, okay, great. Well, who's in charge of making sure that that happens? Because you have a head of marketing, you have a head of engineering, you have a head of supply chain, you have a head HR, a head of finance. Like you have people who are responsible for each of the important functions of the company. Who's responsible for the entrepreneurship challenge that you face? Who is making sure that those networks uh, inside and outside the company are interlinked? Who's making sure that people who have entrepreneurial ideas inside the company in a meritocratic way can be invested in, you know, can, can try things even if they kind of cause the innovator's dilemma and freak people in the company out? And the answer to that question in most companies is nobody. And it's no surprise that they behave the way that they do because they build this kind of top-down command and control, very traditional bureaucratic structure. And I think companies that are organized that way, you know, they're not going to be able to survive the kind of forces that you're talking about because sitting here, no matter how smart we are, we can't foresee this disruption in every single industry all at once. And the ripple effects of that, it's, it's too much to hope that we'll be able to predict. So building a management culture and a management system, processes, finance, accounting, IT, um, HR that are designed around um, making sure people are resilient in the face of multiple failures, making sure people are adapting and iterating quickly. I mean, that's a whole different management toolkit than most of these companies are, are designed around. So maybe we should do a joint book together, The Lean Startup in the Third Wave. The third wave yeah. <laughs> corporate disruption. Yeah, do, do, do you ever get any comparisons to third wave feminism? I've not one. yet. Yeah, there are a lot yet. of third okay. waves, though. When we, when we, yeah, we, we it's started to, uh, if you search on like Twitter on third wave, they're like third wave coffee and third wave this and third wave that. So we had to go with third wave book just to be clear what we're. What we're oh, this is the third wave book. I see. Third wave coffee sounds delicious. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this is a good segue. We got a question from the audience, which is um, Has the advent of the digital age democratized entrepreneurship innovation? And they also have a little asterisk. If so, has it made it easier for Hawaii to diversify its economy? I'm from Hawaii, so I. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, so here's my take on this, and I say this uh, respectfully sitting in Silicon Valley, uh, that Silicon Valley is awesome, and the innovation in Silicon Valley is awesome, and will continue to be awesome, and it's got, a, as you know, because you're here, an incredible ecosystem 
with talent and capital and sort of this fearless culture, and that's wonderful and that will continue. Uh, but there's also some arrogance in Silicon Valley that basically says that all great innovative companies and people are in Silicon Valley. Uh, and the realities are not. They're spread all around the country, indeed all around the world. And I think one of the things that's gonna happen in the third wave is you're gonna see a broadening of, of, of innovation. And that's not to say Silicon Valley won't still be in the lead. I think it will be in the lead. But it is to say you're going to see what I call in the book the rise of the rest and the rise of, of, of different regions, again, both within the country and, and around the world. I think it's a good thing. It's going to be a great thing for those communities. It's a great thing to you know, give more people an opportunity. Uh, last year, for example, 75% of venture capital went to three states, California, you win, <laughs> New York, and Massachusetts, 75%. And that does not reflect the distribution of great entrepreneurs with, with, with great ideas. And it's actually worse if you dig a little deeper. About 90% went to men, 10% to women. Does not reflect the distribution. People of color, even worse. And so they, what may seem here, like anybody with an idea has a shot and access to capital, uh, it's not true in parts of this area. And it's certainly not true in many parts of the the country. So one of the pushes we have is to democratize access to entrepreneurship, democratize access to opportunity. One of the great things about the internet, it was did level the playing field, give everybody access to information. I think that's been incredibly you know, powerful. We have not yet democratized access to opportunity and created entrepreneurial culture and almost like an on-ramp for people who have ideas. And I remind people that Mark Zuckerberg, when he came up with the idea of Facebook, which is a huge success, and, and even today they announced their earnings, it's unbelievable what, what, what they're, they're doing. Uh, so hats off to him. Uh, but Mark happened to be at Harvard and happened to have a rich friend across the hall. Most people aren't at Harvard. And you know what? Most people don't have a rich friend. So if they had the idea, probably wouldn't happen. So how do you make sure everybody, everywhere, of every background uh, who has an idea has a shot. That was part of the idea of Startup America. It's part of the idea of this rise. The rest is partly why my investment firm, Revolution, basically says we invest our capital outside of Silicon Valley. It's not that we don't love Silicon Valley, but everybody else is investing in Silicon Valley. Valuations actually tend to be a little high as a result. <laughs> We'd rather invest in other places. So we, we invested in Shinola and Detroit. Big investment. They're bringing manufacturing jobs back to Detroit building a great brand, it's gonna be a you know, very valuable company. You know what the founder of that company's you know, goal was and purpose was? Create jobs. That actually was the founding kind of purpose of the, of the company and he's created a couple thousand jobs and it's you know, created a sense of hope and possibility in, uh, in, in, in Detroit. So looking for companies that are trying to do that, they're trying to you know, lift up their, their regions, they're trying to inject purpose as well as profit in what they're they're doing. I think that's going to help define and really animate the, the third wave. So yeah, we've made progress. And in this case, I give some credit to the, the government that four years ago, the Congress passed the Jobs Act, as you know, the Jumpstarting Our Business Startups Act, a bunch of things in it. But the, a big, big aspect was crowdfunding. And the reason that's important is if you look at the crowdfunding project sites like Indiegogo and Kickstarter, Nearly half of the successful projects have a woman as a founder. Nearly half, yet 10% of venture capital goes to women. What's the balance? It suggests it's a more, this side, more the networks and who you know and, and, and who people are comfortable with. 
on this one, it's like watching the video on, on Kickstarter and saying, that coolest cooler is pretty cool, or that, you know, that you know, other, other thing is, is pretty interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll buy that thing. You actually don't really care who the person is. You don't really care where they're located. They, they could be in San Francisco. They also could be in Des Moines. You're, you're basically investing in that, in that idea. So that does help level the playing field, and I think that will be a big thing to watch and encourage in this, in this third wave. It's terrifying for our friends in consumer packaged goods. And consumer products, because all of a sudden they're competing with millions. And there's some the world. platforms like like Circle Up that it is a, essentially a, a an investment platform that exclusively focused on you know consumer goods, and some really interesting kind of products are being launched out. But the successful companies there are figuring that out. And so for, I was in Cincinnati a few months ago. Procter and Gamble is in Cincinnati, great consumer packaged goods company. They're now doing a lot of stuff in Cincinnati and more broadly to actually understand what the entrepreneurs are doing and figuring some of those what could be partners, they could maybe distribute the product, some of them could be acquisitions, so rather than just focus on what P&G is inventing the new, you know, whatever, Prell or Sure Deodorant or, you know, that you know, we're gonna still do that, but also figure out what's happening around the periphery and, and partner with some of those entrepreneurs. Do you feel like there are, like there's business model innovation that's distinctive for the third wave that's different than what we've seen, seen before? Absolutely. It depends on the sector, but it's, it's partly it, part of, part of the, the point of, of the book. Of course, technology is important. Of course, the Internet is important. I, you know, of course, I think that is, is important. But it's the other aspects that are going to you know, likely define some of the success and failure. So whether it be you know, business model innovation or success in terms of partnerships or success on the policy side, actually partnership and policy at the core are people skills not coding skills. And, and, and if you get that right, you have the ability to build relationships and build trust with potential partners or, or with potential regulators. That's going to be really important in, in the third way, which doesn't mean the coding doesn't continue to be important. Of course it does, but it's not just about the app. It's not just about the software. It's a much more complicated and nuanced you know, process around uh, innovation. I appreciate you, you calling out the lack of diversity in the ecosystem and you know, the idea that not everybody has equal access. I feel like that conversation needs to be had more and more often. One of the things I hear a lot when I talk about that or, or try to engage with that topic here is people say, well, listen, technology is a meritocracy. The internet is a meritocracy. So there, by definition, there can't be any problem. As if meritocracy was like a binary switch that you flip. And then once you've done it, then you're completely done. Um, you know, you, you must encounter that, that kind of thinking. Like, how do we make the ecosystem more meritocratic? How do we bring more people into it? And, and, and level that playing field to make it, you know, access more I equal. Think, I think there sometimes, and this is not true with everybody, obviously, but there's some people who do have a view that technology solves every problem. And if you just throw software at it, it's going to solve the problem. As I said before, of course software is part of the answer, but it's not the only part of the answer, and it requires a much more complicated uh, you know, a, approach to things. Uh, and so the idea that somehow technology, because, you know, technically anybody can code and technically anybody can create an app, so therefore technically everybody has a shot and, and it, just, it just, you know, whoever happens to be the winners, it just happened as a complete meritocracy. That's just really not true. And it, it does happen to you know, have a correlation to who you know, happens to have a correlation to what school you went to, happens to have a correlation to... 
if you're a white guy, you know, it tends, <laughs> seems to be working better. Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's the reality. And, and, and so it just, it's, it will change over time. I think, it, 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 you know, some of these rise of the rest regions, I think, are, 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 are leading the way. There's some cities that are basically say one of the most important things they're trying to do as a city is create an environment for inclusive entrepreneurship. A deliberate stated objective where the community is rallying around trying to, you know, impact hubs or opportunity hubs, you know, different things in different, you know, communities where they're really saying this community wants to be differentiated, not just based on the kind of companies we do, focused on ed tech or focused on health tech or what have you, but the philosophy we bring uh, to entrepreneurship. And, and some are focusing on inclusive uh, entrepreneurship, some are focusing on impact investing. There are different ways people are trying to uh, differentiate. I think that's great. It's, you know, it's sort of how do you make sure that, that people really do have a, a sense of, of uh, a possibility. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. So, so out here we have a lot of people that think that technology will solve everything. In our audience, we have people who feel a little bit differently and have a number of questions right. here. This one came with a headline associated with I like the headline, all caps, social slash political unrest due to the third wave. That's the topic category. Now I'm going to ask you this question. <laughs> Given our current political you landscape. E for social unrest? <laughs> the book just came out three weeks ago. Come on, give me a break. Given our current political landscape of populism, thanks a lot, Steve. Well done. And income inequality, what do you predict in a few years with AI, automation, uh, everything you're talking about with third wave that would exacerbate this inequality? Do you think it's going to get, get it better or worse because of the third wave? It's going to get better and worse. I think there absolutely are going to be uh, jobs that are lost because of technology, you know, productivity gains. Uh, and we've already seen kind of the many middle-class jobs hollowed out, and that's part of the reason people are frustrated. And you see that even in the, you know, in the, the election this year. There are a lot of people who do feel left out. They really do feel it's not fair. They really do feel they don't have a, a shot. So there's absolutely going to be that kind of thing. At the same time, I think we've seen a, a arc of history where while some jobs, even some sectors kind of go by the wayside, other things emerge that often surprise. A hundred years ago, 98% of us were in farming, agriculture. Now it's 2%. 
you know, the, the people went out of that business, and part of that reason you only need 2% is because of automation. And people said, well, that doesn't seem like a particularly good career anymore, and, and I'll, I'll go do something else. And they get trained in different ways for, for different skills. And we just need to continue to innovate. We need more companies like the example I met with Shinola, where it's not just focused on eliminating jobs, but focused on creating jobs. And having that's where some of the impact investing kind of you know, mentality uh, is. The other thing I should say is that even the definition of jobs, the definition of work, is changed a lot. Right now, 34% of people say they're part of the freelance economy. Millions of people are part of this gig economy, what some people call the flexible economy. It didn't even exist five years ago. Uh, and it's, it's, it's strange to watch in the pace of this, because when I was a kid, the model was you, you went to work for a big company. Like my dad worked for one organization for 60 years. Right. So when I had three jobs in three years out of college, they were a little freaked out. It's like Steve's <laughs> not going. This is a problem. Uh, and now there's some people. Interrupting because well, we got a question here, which is uh, it's clearly, clearly a hypothetical question. How do you deal with parents that are concerned that your entrepreneurial journey is not going well or something like that? My case, case, they were in Hawaii and I was in Washington, D.C. So maybe maybe distance is a good thing. Now, they they were actually supportive. They're just worried. They're just feeling like, you know, this is not sure this is, you know, this path is going to work out. But I understand that they're a little more. My dad was a lawyer. My mom was a teacher. A little more more cautious, a little more generational thing. Uh, but I, I particularly, one, again, one of the things I talked about, some of the negatives of Silicon Valley, one of the things that really is great is this, is this sense of possibility, the fearlessness the community brings. There are many parts of the country, including, by the way, Hawaii, uh, that are risk-averse. They kind of clinging to the past. They actually are scared of the, you know, the, the future. Uh, and that does not create the right environment for entrepreneurship. So part of the message with Startup America and some Rise of the Rest is, is how do these communities rally together, create more network density, create more connections and collaboration within the community, and, and try to change the, the dynamic. And what I, I ask people to think about in these you know, communities I, I visited is when you hear a startup pitch, does your mind immediately go to why it might fail or why it might succeed. Most people in most parts of this country focus on why it's going to fail. Silicon Valley, actually, you know, there's always going to be some skepticism. It's more like, hmm, maybe that, that's kind of interesting. Maybe that will succeed. And having that sense of possibility, not, not reckless, not, not, not crazy, but just sort of a sense of why it might work as opposed to why it might not work is actually a critical ingredient to create a vibrant kind of entrepreneurial you know, community. Yeah, so uh, we've got a question here about how is the third wave going to impact the emerging economies of the world? We've been talking kind of in a U.S.-centric way, and I, you know, I certainly appreciate what you've done with Rise of the Rest to, to spread the message that this can be a kind of a source of American renewal, but what's the global perspective? Yeah, I think there's two parts to it, the, the, uh, and I spent a little time on, on, uh, on both. There, there are yeah, a lot of the focus, and uh, I guess my real passion is how do you, we make sure this country remains the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world, which I think is possible, but it's not given. You know, I think, I think we get, some people get a little com- cocky and complacent thinking somehow there's something so unique about America's pioneering spirit that we're always going to be a leader. And there are a lot of countries that have figured out you know, that the secret sauce that's powered the whole story of America is innovation, entrepreneurship, and are changing their policy. So how do you make sure the rest is rising? How do you make sure the playing field is leveled? All those are part of it. At the same time, I do think it's important to essentially educate people all around the world of the power of entrepreneurship. 
Uh, we've done some work through the Case Foundation, uh, mostly my wife, Jean, and the West Bank. Started a venture capital fund you know, four or five years ago there to create jobs in places like Ramallah. There's a reason why that was a very difficult, scary, dangerous place, is most people, particularly young people, had no hope. And, and so creating a sense of hope uh, and by creating jobs and, and growing companies is, was a way to, you know, to do that. We've also done a number of things. Last summer, we were actually with President Obama in uh, Africa and Kenya and, and uh, Nigeria and Ghana. It's amazing what's happening there. And, and, and some of the greatest innovations there, we made some investments like in energy with, with solar and, and, uh, and rural villages creating... Uh, you know, energy that you know, we all take for granted here. Most parts of Africa, they don't have access to core, any you know, basic infrastructure. And suddenly they have access to uh, a, a way to recharge their phone and access to light their, 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 their dwelling. And, and it really is a game changer. And the perspective they bring, because they're close to the problem, they identify solutions, entrepreneurial solutions, that people sitting here or in New York would never even think of. It's not even on their radar. But because they're living that and understanding the problem firsthand, uh, they're creating opportunities. So I think Africa now has pivoted in the last decade from a problem to an opportunity. It, it went from kind of Africa, all these challenges needs more grants, and there are obviously a lot of challenges, and more grant, grants are important, but much more Africa open for business, an enormous opportunity. Now investors, not just philanthropists, investors are, 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 are focused on that. And more recently in Cuba, you know, what's happened the last year is remarkable. And, and, the, and I was there about a year and a half ago, uh, and the entrepreneurial spirit there is terrific. It just for half a century has been bottled up. And as things are unleashed there, I think it's going to be you know, incredibly entrepreneurial and create a sense of, of, of a possibility there. So I, I think, it's, of course, we need to focus on this country, and of course, we need to focus on people left out and, and focus on communities that don't have you know, job growth and, and, and so forth. But we also need to recognize the best way to have a safe, peace, peaceful world is to have the more prosperous world where people feel there really is opportunity. So that's probably not a hypothetical question, but but political leaders around the world in communities, you know, who ask you for advice, you know, how do we create a more pro entrepreneurship public policy? What 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 do you think are the critical elements of that? What are prescriptions well, it to? It varies to do depending that? on the place. Obviously, there's some parts of the the world, including many parts of Africa, where there's some pretty fundamental things like rule of law and other things that need to kind of be put in place. And in this country, there's a handful of things I think are important. One of them I talked about, creating this you know, culture around uh, risk-taking and uh, creating more connections, more you know, network density in these different communities, making sure the regulatory environment in terms of what they're doing is supportive uh, of that, recognizing that the real job creators are not the big companies, but the startups. The Kauffman Foundation data there is pretty compelling. Is that 40 million jobs have been created in the last three decades by young, high-growth startups. That small business in general, restaurants, dry cleaners, you know, come and go. There's not a lot of net job creation. It's important, adds up to a lot of jobs, but not a lot of job growth. Big companies, Fortune 500 companies, not a lot of job growth. It's really these young companies. So instead of trying to lure you know, some corporate headquarters to, to move, uh, try to lure talent to, to move and capital to move so you can you know, launch more, 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 more companies uh, there and then build more connections with the big companies in the region. So they, they go back to what we were talking about before. It's not the startups feeling like they're off on their own and nobody cares what they're doing. It's how do you create more of those different, different connections? So a bunch of things that need to happen depending on where in that cycle uh, you know, things are. 
So what about you know things like I think kind of topics of controversy today? Right? Things like uh, should states and you know have enforceable non-competes? Right in California, you can't enforce a non-compete against an employee. Um, some people feel like a stronger social safety net makes people more likely to to take a risk. That was a big part of the Obamacare debate. Are there kind of specific concrete policies? Obviously, giving uh, entrepreneurs, people who want to come to the United States and work as entrepreneurs a visa. We currently have no visa category for entrepreneurs, which seems crazy to me. You know, there are kind of, do you have specific uh, kind of favorite policies yeah, no, that you, you I, think the, the, you'd like to see politicians embrace? I think you've, you've, you've touched on some of them. I think the, we need to uh, have a whole chapter in the book about America disrupted and both the risks, uh, but also potentially opportunities and lay out a half a, half a dozen things. What you talk about immigration is one of them. I understand immigration is like a super sensitive, hot issue, particularly this election year. And it's also many facets to it. Uh, but as you say, you know, we, we part of the reason we've been so successful is we have been an immigrant nation. 40% of Fortune 500 companies uh, have an immigrant founder. Uh, about 40% of, of Silicon Valley successful companies have an immigrant founder. It was 50% 10 years ago, by the way. It's lot, we've lost 10 points in 10 years because we made it harder to stay here. One example I mentioned is, is SnapDeal. This is a company that started by a Wharton graduate in the United States. He wanted to stay, couldn't extend his visa, had to leave, went home to India, moved the company there. And now they have 5,000 employees that are worth $5 billion. And he wanted to stay here. And I hear those stories all the time. So immigration is one. Regula regulations, particularly around some of these sectors and, and the convergence of these sectors in the third wave is another. Investment incentives around capital, making sure things like crowdfunding work so every entrepreneur anywhere who has an idea has a shot there. It's a bunch of things that, that you know, can be done and I think need to be done. Um, one of the things I appreciate about your perspective here is that unlike a lot of folks who, have a, who opine on these topics, you've actually done a lot of constructive engagement with government in the government, you you know you work you were on the White House Jobs Council. You've worked directly with President Obama. You worked with both Democrats and Republicans on the Jobs Act and a number of initiatives. So, talk a little bit about how that originally came about and and what's it like to work with the president. Well, it came about five or six years ago. I mean, I, I should say I've worked, I've lived in Washington now for over thirty years, and in those that first wave of the internet when the internet was coming of age, worked closely with the Clinton White House then, and did some also things with the with President Bush when he was president, and more recently with President Obama. So I've always stayed out of the politics uh -huh. uh, and focused more on policy and tried to be kind of a nonpartisan, kind of behind the scenes kind of bridge builder. Uh, and whoever the next president is, uh, whoever is controlling the Congress, I'll do what I can to be helpful in trying to move some of these things uh, you know, forward. No matter who it is? No matter who it is. You know, there's some I'd prefer over others, I admit it, even though I won't tell you who, but there's some that might scare me a little bit, but whoever the president is, I'm there and try to do my part to be helpful to the country. That's patriotism right there. Yeah, the, um, there it is. Uh, but the more recent thing, about five, six years ago, I was asked to co-chair the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship. That led to a series of recommendations, including the White House, that they start this initiative called Startup America, and then the president asked me to lead that, and then created this jobs council chaired by Jeff Immelt, the CEO of GE, and I was on that and led the effort along with John Dorr of Kleiner Perkins here, Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook here, a number of things around uh, entrepreneurship, and that, you know, there's just kind of one thing led to another. One of the big recommendations of the jobs council uh, was around capital, and that led to essentially proposing a series of things which then led to, in this case, the, the Republican majority leader at the time, Eric Cantor, proposing the Jobs Act that was building on these White House recommendations. And that, you know, that yeah, went through 
you know, Congress, and I've you know, also been working on um, the immigration you know, issue. So it depends on what the issue. It depends on you know what the obviously what the environment is right now. Nothing's going to happen in an election year around immigration, for example. Uh, but hopefully, come January, we'll get that back uh, on the front burner. So we got time for for one last question. Um, oh, this is gonna be. You got like twenty. I got. I know. I, I, I try to get as many as I as many as I could. Randomly pick. Uh, okay. Well, all right. Well, this one. For, okay. Let me just do this, and then we'll do the, the real last question. Uh, someone wants to know if the fact that the third wave chapter starts on the page 42 was intentional because that's the uh, answer to everything, life, the universe, and everything. Is that, is that some kind of esoteric uh, Douglas wow. Adams reference? Now that's, that's a question I've not heard yet on this book tour. Now actually, the way I thought about the book uh, is I, I really, as I said at the very beginning, I really wanted to write a book about the future. Uh, and, uh, so I, I only wanted to tell stories about the past when, like Shakespeare said, the past was prologue and some of those stories about the past would help inform the, the future. So trying to weave something together that, that was more about where things are going, more about the, the, the playbook, the mindset that's necessary there. And then... Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.